Today, my guest is Ann Kelly, the gallery director at Photo Eye Gallery in Santa Fe, New Mexico. We have a great conversation about photography as a fine art form. So, like, very pedantic, specific conversations about editioning, pricing, exclusivity, certificates of authenticity, which, as you all know, I have a thing about and materials and even making unique photographic pieces versus you know doing the traditional photography thing and making an addition of something so very engaging very specific enjoyed this greatly and i hope you do too the wise fool is supported in part by an eea grant from iceland Liechtenstein, and norway in an effort to work together for a green competitive and inclusive europe we would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic and Kunst Centrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes. Could you please pronounce your name correctly for me? Anne Kelly. And you are the gallery director at Photo Eye. Now, I've known Photo Eye since I was an undergraduate. You weren't there at the time, I know but I've known it for decades. I have high admiration for it. You all are like one of the the pinnacles of like, oh my God, I so wish I could get them to represent me or have my book in their bookstore. You all do a lot of things, but you're only the sort of the part of the gallery, but could you give a little overview of what all of Photo Eye is? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been with Photo Eye Gallery for going on about 15 years now. And we celebrated PhotoEye's 40th anniversary in 2019, I want to say. So we're going on about 41 years now. And it originally started as a bookstore in the owner and founder Ricks and Reed's home in Austin, Texas. And so they were selling books kind of pre-internet really. So it's it's really kind of a cool story. He was really interested in photo books. So he invested in, I want to say, three or four titles that he believed in. He bought a mailing list. He typed up letters, mailed them to people, managed to sell those titles, invested in more books, and and kept doing that way up until the point where it evolved into email newsletters, and there was a book list for a while. And in 1991, he and his partner, Vicki Bohannon, moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico, and that's when they first got the first brick-and-mortar location. So they opened PhotoEye Books. And naturally, because they were dealing in photography, people also wanted to hang their prints on the walls as well. That makes sense. So about, I wanna say maybe three years later was when the gallery came to be. So for a while, everything was in one location and then the gallery became substantial enough that it became its own entity as well. So at this point, PhotoEye, Books is the oldest and largest photography bookstore in the United States. And on top of all of that, we have this really fantastic website as well. So you can go and you can 
look at all of the books on our website. We've got these book teases so you can flip through there. If you're a really hardcore photo book fan, we have a newsletter that's called Photo Book Daily. So you can literally get your daily newsletter. And the gallery has its own newsletter as well, which is just weekly. On top of even being a bookstore and a gallery, and there's some other things we do as well, which I can go into later, just the, re the website on its own is really just a fantastic resource. Our book list, which I mentioned earlier, eventually turned into a blog. And so that's original content created by our staff and sometimes outside writers almost daily. I have a vague memory. I believe I saw a catalog, like a printed catalog of, from the bookstore back when I was in school in like 1996 era, somewhere in that. Is that right? That's right. People, okay. people collect those. And I can't tell you right now which year that started, but I want to say those were produced for about a decade or so. And the first few were kind of your, your staple bound, very basic catalogs and people subscribe to those. And in the end, they were always soft bound, but they, they became a little more substantial over the years. And I want to say it was maybe about 10 years ago or so that we decided to just turn that into the blog. Oh, it makes sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. These days. But people collect them. Yeah. I remember them fondly. I remember flipping through them and we would all like, because uh, our professors would bring them in when I was at the Corcoran mm -hmm. in DC and they would bring them in and be like, oh, look at the new stuff that's coming out. So-and-so has a new book. And like, they would sort of like be encouraging us. And, what to buy. and they would also ask us as students, they would say, what would you like us to buy to put in the school library as well? So we also gave us mm -hmm. input in the ability to actually sort of build out a better library for the school. Our book division still sells to a lot of school libraries, other institutions, and such. But now, instead of waiting for the quarterly book list, you can get photo book daily. So every day, you will know. If you <laughs> have that desire. <laughs> exactly. I mean, goodness knows there are certainly enough books being produced in the world to do one a day. There's also, for those that maybe don't want the daily newsletter, you can sign up for the Sunday newsletter, or maybe it's the Saturday newsletter. But anyways, it's it it's a weekly newsletter that's a synopsis of everything that was in the daily newsletter. All right. Enough about the bookstore. You don't work in the bookstore. You work in the gallery. So let's talk about the gallery. So the gallery, again, I've had like this great admiration for the gallery. I believe I've even submitted to the gallery uh, numerous times over my career. You all have turned me down every time. It's fine. I have no heart feelings because in hindsight, the work was not very good. I will do it again sometime in the near future because I think I have stronger work now. But that's a little side note. <laughs> but one of the big questions I have is like you all have this submissions button on your website. And I've known about this, you know, basically since you built your website. I could not imagine the sheer amount of time and energy you have to put into going through all of those submissions. So like how many submissions do you all actually get? I wouldn't say there's really a, a really a great answer to that. It really kind of changes over time. Some months there's 
way more submissions than others, a lot of times closer to maybe say around New Year's or so, maybe it's people's New Year's resolution, they're gonna get it together and apply. But it's, it's really made something, it's really just made it possible for us to actually review all of the submissions. Otherwise, and, and this still happens, you get a, a lot of unsolicited submissions through emails, postcards, all of those types of things. And, and that's fine, but it's not practical for us to, and, and if you email me out of the blue and say, hey, take a look at this work, I'll probably respond to you thanking you and directing you to the submissions button just because that's how we can actually organize it we have somebody that receives all of those submissions coordinates them sends out an email to everybody who's on our jury to look at them so there's there's a procedure there so that, that makes it doable <laughs> well you just sort of started giving me an answer to the next question so like when people do submit to the gallery like is it a you're the gallery director, you make the final decision. It sounds like you've mentioned that there's a, a jury of some sort. So like, how is that structured? There, there's a few of us. So it would be myself and the gallery owner, Rickson, and then someone else from our staff. And over the years, it's, it's changed a little bit. So it's usually somewhere between three to four of us looking at the submissions. And there's a few different things we could be considering you for. It could be for a gallery exhibition. Most of the time, well, I should go back a little bit. In addition to the physical gallery, we also have a section of our website that we call the Photographer Showcase. And so those are artists that we just represent on our website. I think it's pretty logical, obviously. We only have so many flat files. There's only so much inventory we can manage, so many artists we can properly represent in the physical space. So the showcase is a good opportunity for us to show a larger group of artists just in a different way. And so most of the time, I would say when we accept people, it's to the showcase, but oftentimes the showcase artists become gallery artists. So a number of our gallery artists now started on the showcase. And in addition to that, we also have another section of our website that's called Art Photo Index, also created by our owner and founder. And that's more of a resource of just different photographers who are working right now. So that's not work that we're actively selling. That is simply a resource. So I don't know if you've checked that out, but you can explore by country keywords, you can follow artists. So if we accept you there, it might be that we feel that the work is strong, but maybe it's not a good match for the gallery per se, for our, our clientele. Right. Which leads to the, of course, the question we all ask is sort of like, how, like what constitutes an artist that you all think you can work well with? You know, so like whether it's subject matter, technique, their, their concepts behind it, like what are the things that you're looking for that says that's somebody I want to work with? Well, one of the things that is key for me is that we feel very strongly about the work. It could be that maybe we saw see some work that seems saleable, but if we're not 
passionate about it, then that's not enough. But then on top of that, we are a for-profit business as well. So we also do need to be able to sell the work. We have a client base and kind of a pretty good understanding of, of what those clients and collectors are going to be interested in. So it's, it's kind of an intersection in between those two things, I would say. And if you look at our website, maybe there's types of work that, for example, I, I'm a fan of documentary photography, but it's not really what we're known for. So if you're a documentary photographer, you know, we're, we're well open to taking a look, but, you know, at the end of the day, we do need to feel that the work is a good match for our client base. Otherwise, it's not really doing either of us a favor. Well, yeah, right? but you, you do have some. You got like Steve Curry and a couple other documentarians mixed in there. We do have some Magnum photographers whose work we do offer, but they wouldn't be artists that are physically stored in our in our flat files in Santa Fe. And as a professor, API, it's also a really, I don't know how much time you've spent in there, but that's a really great resource. Probably not as much as I should. Mm-hmm. Well. Now you know. <laughs> I do, and I will gladly point everybody to it. Something I forgot to ask about, actually. So, like, uh, first of all, are you a photographer? I always have a hard time answering that question. I went to school for photography. I guess I am someone that takes pictures. I'm not actively exhibiting or seeking to show my photographs. I take them because I like to take them. But that that's how I got into this initially. I started making photographs when I was probably about 13 years old with a 35 millimeter camera. When I graduated from high school, I couldn't think of anything else in the world that I would wanna go to college for other than photography. So I did go to the College of Santa Fe, and I did earn my BFA there. And then it just turned out that I really found a passion on the gallerist side of things. How does that happen, though? Because I've worked in galleries. I've worked in galleries. I've worked in museums. I've been a professor. I've done all kinds of crazy stuff in my lifetime. And like being a gallerist, I found to be very difficult. Uh, I mean, a lot of people think like it's fun and you just go around and schmooze and, and talk to, you know, rich and powerful people and all this kind of stuff. But I'm like, oh no, it's, it's a lot of like monotonous work. It's the cataloging, the, the shipping, the insurance, the, you know, keeping up with all the, the aloof and crazy people in the art world. I mean, there's a lot of stuff work there that is not the glamorous romantic work that everybody thinks a gallery director does. Oh, it's, it's true. It's, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of emails. I, I could probably technically go and work for, for FedEx right now or a frame shop or, I mean, you really have to be knowledgeable about every aspect of anything that could be applicable to it. And there's a lot of emails and there's a lot of following up with people and it's, it's, it's not all glamorous, but I, I do get to be creative every day at work. So I guess that's really what appeals to me. And I love interacting with people. So I get to interact with 
tons of interesting people from the artists to the collectors and kind of connecting those dots in terms of, oh, this person collects this type of work and, ooh, I just found this artist and, and, and just kind of bringing that all together. I think that's, that's really what excites me at the end of the day. It must or else you wouldn't stay there for very long. No. <laughs> Nothing yeah. personal to your gallery, but any gallery you wouldn't stay there if you didn't love that stuff. No, I think these days most people don't do anything for 15 plus years or maybe they do, but it's not it's not as common. I would love to do stuff for 15 plus years if people would let me or more to the point I shouldn't say people would let me if I didn't get tired of it. Mhm. Mm mhm. Mm I had a lovely job in the United Arab Emirates teaching, and I could have probably stayed there the rest of my life. But no, it was it, it just got you get burned out on things sometimes if they're too much. Oh, definitely, definitely. So I think there's just enough different aspects of it that that has kept me has kept me all in. Fair enough. All right, you brought up collectors. I'm always interested from a gallery standpoint. Like some galleries uh, focus on trying to get collectors or work with collectors. Uh, some galleries focus on sort of institutions and possibly getting their artists into institution collections or into institutional exhibitions. And then I'm sure there are other things that gallerists sort of strive to do for their artists. With Like what's the focus of PhotoEye? Well, I would say there's a lot of, of aspects <laughs> to that. I mean, as I mentioned, we are a, a for-profit organization, so we, we do need to sell prints, and my artists also want me to sell their prints so that they can keep making prints. And in, in terms of the types of people that we sell to, we, we do have serious collectors that we work with, but sometimes somebody just needs something to fit their 30 by 40 space over their coffee table. So in terms of collectors that we work with, it's established to some, maybe somebody's just buying their first print ever. And then really just anything we can do for any of our artists to really elevate their career is on the agenda as well. So I guess the question also along with that would be, do you work with institutions much or is it primarily sort of sales? Well, I mean, a lot of our artists that we work with are, are shown in various institutions and such, but I would say mostly on a, on a day-to-day -day basis, most of the communication is between private collectors and artists, but you, you never know what's going to happen. Okay. I, just to be clear, I am not questioning your motives or anything. I think it's fabulous. I would need money if I was a, a, one of your gallery artists as much as I would want, desire an exhibition in an institution. So like being able to say, yes, we earn a good living for our artists, that's amazing. But it also helps if our artists are, are showing in different institutions. And there's different reasons why people collect art. Sometimes people collect it simply because they are drawn to the image and they want to own it. But there's other people who they, they need to see the name and the CV before they're going to consider it. So really, it, it's just it's it's so different from from person to person. 
Yeah, I know. Okay, let's get into some slightly pedantic things then. Sure. Editions. Mm. Fascinated by them. Give me a sort of a construct. Like, what what have you all come to? Because, of course, you all have far you quite honestly you all have been in existence longer than i've been photographing so like you have far more experience than i do so like what's the i don't know uh, i don't want to say like current trend but like what's the common edition size maybe even edition materials like you know what what technologies are people using like what's what's the thing that's sort of happening these days in the time that I've been with the gallery, edition sizes have been getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And um, smaller? Yes. I've, I've joked at one point, maybe there'll be negative edition numbers. You won't even. <laughs> and that's a joke. But that has definitely been the trend as photographies become kind of more entwined with just the art market. And so... That's always been a concern with collectors as well as how many of these are out there. And that's probably something I get asked about maybe more than anything else. And, and it's different from artist to artist and collector to collector. That is common. But I would say about 15 years ago when I started working for the gallery, I would say it was pretty common for artists to maybe sell prints in three different sizes and for whatever reason, usually the smallest print is the largest edition size. So you were seeing a lot more of maybe the small size was an edition of 25. And then the larger sizes were smaller editions. These days I'm seeing, it, I'd say it's more common for it to be an edition of 10 instead of 25. So it's, it's kind of a balancing act though, too. If you're lucky enough to be in this position, if your edition sizes are too small and you have too many galleries and say all of your galleries want to have a physical exhibition of your work and you don't have enough prints to actually hang on the walls of those galleries, again, a good problem to have, but that can be a problem. And then that also ties into the pricing of your work as well, right? Right. Okay. Wait, within that. So like, are we talking just editions? What about artist proofs? Do you, do you sell those? Do you allow for those? Or so it's, it's 10 numbered editions and a or two artist proofs. So like, or is it all inclusive? Usually there's an artist proof or two. In, in terms of the artists that we work with, we don't usually intervene necessarily. And I mean, maybe if somebody had a really giant edition, I might say something. So I, I usually kind of, a lot of times people have questions, I would say, more than anything. They might. What questions do people have? Maybe they're releasing new work and they've come up with an edition, you know, a new editioning and pricing. So they might email that to me and say, hey, what, what do you think of, of this? And I guess on top of the editioning, usually there's tiered editioning in photography as well. So maybe there's an edition of 10 and the first two or three prints in the edition are a certain price and then they kind of go up from there. And in some cases you see where maybe the price might go up by $200 between the tiers. Other artists, it might be $5,000. 
between the tiers. So that's another fun part of my day job is just keeping up with the pricing of everything that's kind of ever changing. Well, I mean, okay, because I, when I was a kid, you know, being trained, I don't remember this tiered additioning pricing thing. Like this is a, a contemporary idea, right? It is, it is. Okay. And so, I mean, it's relatively, I mean, it's not new in the time that I've been working for the gallery, but like Mark Klett, for example, a lot of the kind of old school film photographers, when people first started editioning, they were doing editions of, of 50 and 100 and, and more. And that was when all of this was just very, very new. And a lot of those photographers, specifically film shooters, have made the decision to never print the entire edition. So they've stopped printing that edition of 50 because they don't want to. <laughs> Wait, you mean like, so So they, they say there's an edition of 50, and let's say they print 25 and, the, and it, they haven't sold all the 25, so they don't print the entire run of 50. Right. So okay. maybe maybe 30 years ago, they said this this print is an edition of 50. And so it, it's this whole balancing act between wanting to free up enough prints that if somebody wants to buy 50 of a print, you can do that. But then, I mean, as a photographer, do you want to sit around reprinting the same images over and over again? Or do you want to go out and do you want to go make new images? It is always the eternal question, but mm -hmm. well, but when it comes, okay, like again, so like going back to, I was trained in wet dark room. So like in wet dark room, once you got all the stuff perfect, the chemicals, the exposure, the, 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 the box of paper, like once you got your stuff right, you did as long an addition as you could before your chemicals went bad, before you had to switch to a different box of paper, they could garner different results and all this kind of stuff. So in the old days, I felt that my, and my professors encouraged it, that basically when you get everything tweaked just perfectly, you run the whole addition. These days, I feel like with digital, it's much easier to not run the whole edition and basically sort of, for lack of a better word, print on demand kind of thing. Like, so just print as sales come in. Is that sort of a common thing? It definitely is. Just in terms of storage alone, you figure how many years you've been photographing, how many photographs have you made, how many prints are in the edition, do you actually have you want to fill your entire home with flat files to you know, print all of those. I have half of a garage full of just old works mm -hmm. waiting. Yeah. Yes, it happens. So I think it was more common and, and people are still shooting film and they are still printing in the dark room, but I think it was maybe a little more common when more people were printing in the dark room to want to print the, the entire edition before your chemistry had changed while well, you still had the same paper, that type of thing. Oh yeah. I mean, th these days, like you, once you get your print, right, you can just like write down all the settings that you did and you could reprint it a year later and it will look exactly the same as long as you, you, you keep a good record of all the settings and, and whatever presets and use the same printer and ink and all that stuff. So like it can be done. I'm not questioning it. Mm -hmm. I do it, but it's just an interesting change in the industry. 
Definitely, definitely. And even with digital printing, you're still not going to get the exact result from, from print to print. There's all sorts of details that are going to change. Is your average person going to be able to tell? Maybe, maybe not. But I, I think that's kind of a beautiful thing about it as well, just in that photography is so reproducible and that there are additions and that it can be perceived that way. But each print is still going to be a little bit different. I like that about it. Me as well. But because, of course, I'm also a material person, so I love beautiful papers as well. So, the okay, but I want to understand something. So, like, okay, in the old days, I, I sound so old when I'm saying things like this. I know. It's fine. In the old days, if some, so let's say an artist did an edition of a hundred and let's say they sold them for a hundred dollars each, they would end up with, and not strong with math, $10,000. Does that sound right? hundred prints, $10,000. Sounds right. Math isn't okay. really my thing either, but it's okay. That's why I'm an artist. So the, let's go with $10,000. So if these contemporaries are now doing editions of 10, are they selling them for a thousand dollars each and still getting that same ten thousand dollars in the end? Like, so is the is the amount of sort of income the same even though the runs are shorter? Usually, the pricing would be be higher. So, the smaller the edition, the higher the price is going to be, and that's always something to consider as well in terms of when when artists want my advice on this is I do you know what what are you aspiring for do you want your average person to be able to to purchase a print or do you only want certain people to be able to do that I mean it really at a certain point and but really the smaller the addition if you're trying to make that same amount of money off of each print with the smaller edition, in theory, the pricing needs to be higher. And it does warrant it as well because it becomes less common, right? There's not. Sure. Yeah. yeah. 8, exclusivity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exclusivity breeds. I forget what the phrasing is, but yeah, less there is in the world, the higher the value of it. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Okay. So, but. In the like, I remember. Again, I feel so old. All right, so like, I remember when I was a wee lassie that the <laughs> they used to say like uh, uh, there was sort of tiers. Like, I remember like five hundred dollars was a, like a certain level of a career. A thousand dollars was like a certain level of a career. You know, two thousand, or and then it jumped to like two thousand five hundred. And so, like, are, are those increments still sort of existing? Like, you know, like uh, an emerging artist, general prints or prices would be at a certain tier, and then like a, a mid career, and then you know a high career. Like, are these kinds of things still in existence? I'd say yes and no. <laughs> Come on, I want solid answers. Stop giving me yes and no. <laughs> well, it, it really all just depends. I'd say in the past, I don't know, 10 years or so, you see a lot of artists that are coming out of graduate school that are charging $3,500 for their, their smaller prints. And then I've also seen the reaction where people who are established and have been in it for 40, 50 years 
then start increasing their prices because they say, okay, these graduate students are charging this amount of money for this print. And, and so it kind of affects everything as a whole. Usually when people are asking me about prices, I'll send them to PhotoWise website because for the most part, we do have pricing and edition sizes and tiers listed for all of our artists. So I feel like that's a pretty good resource for people to look at. But if you're looking for a black and white answer, no, there is no handbook that says if you are at this point in your career, this is how much your print should be. And if you are a mid-career artist, this is how much your print should be. And if you've published five books, you can then charge this much more. It's I'm looking for an Excel spreadsheet that gives yeah, me that point by it, point. That, it doesn't exist. Okay. Well, <laughs> I will continue to look. I'm sure somebody has one somewhere. Maybe somebody's made one, but I, I don't think that everybody's following it necessarily. Well, I mean, that's sort of the thing is like, I mean, the, to me, like that sounds like that could sort of, I don't know, it sort of hurt hurt some people's reputations. Like if people are just coming out of grad school and they're charging $5,000 for a piece and then there's somebody who's been doing it for 40 years and they're selling it for $3,000, mm -hmm. like th that seems like there's a bit of disparity there. There is, there is. And I, I'd say some solid advice that I usually give artists is you can always increase your prices, but you can never decrease them. So that if you if you're selling your prints for $1,000 and people buy them, and then you even decrease them down to $800. I mean, you can just think about how the people who did buy those prints are going to react to that. That's not going to be a positive thing. But there's also kind of this perceived value aspect as well. So if you are selling your prints for $50, then maybe people think, oh, they're only $50. They're not worth anything. So it's, it, there's this very kind of fine line in between that you kind of want to. Oh yeah. I, I've seen yeah. it like in action in my own career, but like I've had, uh, uh, young collectors come to me and say like, Oh, I'd love to buy this, but I don't have, I, think, I don't remember how much it was $500. And I said, well, you know what? That's fine. I'll sell it to you for $500. Then I had this guy who came to me saying, I'm a big collector. I have the biggest collection in the world, blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, your price, $10,000. <laughs> wow. and, and when I said that, he was just like, sure. Like he was fine with it. Like, mm -hmm. you know, so like there, there's a, a thing and I've never been able to find that right balance of like, I, I, you know, I follow sort of the Andy Warhol philosophy. Like I would love to sell a thousand prints for a dollar each versus mm -hmm. a, a single print for a thousand dollars kind of thing. Like I would love that, but there's this perceived value that like when you put a price of like $10,000 on a piece, suddenly people go like, wow, that's worth a lot. That's very mm -hmm. valuable. Now that doesn't mean it ever got sold for $10,000, but that's what somebody asked for it. That's what they, the right. evaluation that's been put on it. So like, have you ever run into a situation where like putting that, like trying to do that, like put a high value on something to give something more prestige didn't work? I gotta say when, in terms of, if you're an artist that I'm representing, that that wouldn't be a strategy that I would recommend to you. Do you know what I mean? I do. If I think you're in that 
at that point in your career that that's what you want to do. And I think people will pay those prices. Sure, let's do that. But but I would never say, hey, let's elevate your career by changing your base price to 10000 Maybe some people do that, but... I have not met anybody like that. That's not me. <laughs> and I was exaggerating with my story about the collector, by the way. That's not what I did. But sure. Just a theoretical example. But the... <laughs> The uh, the nature of pricing, though, so like, it's a it's a tough one, like, to know what the right price is because, like, like for me, okay, I I only know my own life, so I just use myself as the stupid example of this. I've moved a lot, and so like, as I change locations, I end up having to sort of reassess my prices. Like, I got here to the Czech Republic, mm-hmm. and they basically said, "Oh, your prices are." London prices. You'll never get that price here. And so they wanted me to lower my prices to meet the existing market in the Czech Republic. And I kept telling them, I'm like, I'm not from the Czech Republic. So like my prices are the same prices worldwide. If you can't afford it, then you can't afford it. Like I'm not going to lower my price just to meet your regional price point. And that's a difficult thing because the 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 internet and of course all this stuff has made the world sort of. It, it, you've got to find that price that is high enough to be prestigious, but not so low that you're sort of putting it into the lower markets. Like, and it's really hard to find that right price point, no matter who the artist is. That is definitely true, and no, and you can't reduce your prices. You could, for example, maybe create a new project and make your edition sizes higher and maybe price that work at a lesser price point or even do an open edition, something like that. So there's there's ways to go about it that you can't go back and make, you know, fruit study 99 less expensive. I totally understand. Just frowned upon. Oh uh, yeah! Oh yeah! No, I've uh, the you know first advice I got in college is basically never lower your price. Mm-hmm. And th- th- there was also the they actually had an Excel spreadsheet that said that <laughs> like I think it's like every two years you're supposed to increase your price something like twenty percent or something along that line. Basically, the idea would be if you're with a gallery and you have an exhibition in that gallery every two years, every new exhibition you do, you increase your price on average twenty percent. Do you still do stuff like that? I, I don't have that spreadsheet. No. <laughs> I'm looking for a spreadsheet. Somebody give me that spreadsheet. All right, fine. Maybe somebody out there has it, but. <laughs> okay. All right. Another question I have about like editions and specifically like works on paper, certificates of authenticity. I'm a huge obsessive about certificates of authenticity. Like, so like, do you do them? How elaborate are they? Like for me, I have like a standard one that just like has like, you know, paper size, paper material, printer, blah, blah, blah. And I fill, and then I hand fill in the details of that particular thing. And then I do a little matching number hologram sticker on the back of the, the print and that it's matching on the certificate of authenticity to sort of tie them together. Am I being overly obsessive compulsive? I would say that's quite elaborate, but I wouldn't discourage it. For me, just the actual act of of signing and numbering the print 
makes it authentic to me. So some of our artists do choose to include a certificate on top of that, but it's not something we require as a gallery. It's mostly just that 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 actual print is signed. And then, of course, we will send the client paperwork as well, where we include all of that information. The hologram can't hurt, but... I had a collector that literally said, oh, like I, I, he bought a piece and I gave it and I brought it over to his place of business. And he was like, where's the certificate of authenticity with a, with a hologram sticker? And then he showed me another piece that he owned that had this whole thing. And I was like, fuck, I guess I got to step up and do that. Like, so I thought I was following what was going on in the market, but it sounds like it's not going on in the market and I'm a bit OCD. Well, maybe, but I, that's okay. <laughs> You know, and a, a, another time I see it more often is just in the presentation of photography's really changed. It used to just be every photograph went into a mat, into a black frame, but now you have a lot of people mounting to die bond and using spacers. And, and so in the act of mounting a print to die bond, the signature gets covered and so then there's usually some sort of sticker that's going to go on the back of the die bond. So in that case, I think it's particularly useful to have a certificate on top of that, just being that you don't have the original paper signed at that point. Certainly. It makes sense. I mean, okay. Super, like, okay. Yeah. Signatures on the front, signatures on the back. How? Like, like I was trained with pencil okay. was the proper way to do it. Uh, so what's your general oeuvre for where and how with what material pencil is ideal just because it won't fade over time but a lot of the digital papers they make these days you cannot sign the front in pencil so if you're gonna sign the front it's gonna have to be in pen and that in theory can fade over time some people really prefer to see the signature on the front. So I would say in my ideal situation, it would be a type of paper that you can sign on the front in pencil. But not to say that you shouldn't use your preferred type of paper based upon that. Another aspect is what your signature looks like. And, and that seems very... I don't know, that seems like a weird comment, but... There are signatures and there are signatures. So some signatures are, are beautiful and kind of fade into the artwork, and then others can be a little bit distracting as well. After the era of Donald Trump, no, we we all know what you're talking about. Yes, yes. So going back, usually in the case that someone is signing their work on the front with a pen, I will usually advise that we mat over the signature in the framing process just to preserve it. All right. I see, like I'm an artist, so I always want to see the signature. So I always will end up leaving the mat out, but it makes sense from a preservation standpoint to leave that a, a visible or not leave it visible. So ideally, if you can sign the front in pencil, then you can see it. That's ideal. All right. In the past, like, I don't know, 10 years or so, maybe longer, maybe I've only been paying attention for 10 years, I don't know. I've noticed a trend towards 
unique prints, like photo photographers who doing things that are basically one of a kind, like like paintings, basically, and not editions. Is that a common trend, or is am I making that up? I'm really into unique pieces, and and that's usually a result of the process, not so much that somebody goes and makes a picture and makes a digital print of it, and that's the only one. You, I, I don't really see that happening. But I think the there's kind of been a reaction to the evolution of digital where a lot more people are going back to the earlier processes. And a lot of times it's only possible to make one print or there's gonna be just some variation in the print processes. So that's something I'm I'm super into, but I've always I've always had a thing for the earlier processes. So there seems to be a resurgence in the sort of more traditional processes. There is, and it kind of goes two different directions. When I first started working at the gallery 15 years ago, there was a lot more people coming in asking about digital prints where they should I pay this much money? You know, is this is this pigment print worth $1,500? Is this a valid thing? And anymore, just for your kind of everyday person coming in now, I, I get more questions about what is a silver gelatin print? What is a C print? So there's been kind of this transition where the digital print has become the most common print. I don't really have people asking me, is this a valid type of print and the it's more that the silver gelatin prints and the C prints have turned moved into kind of the alternative process category. But but as part of that, there there has definitely been a resurgence in, in analog photography from Polaroids to platinum prints, cyanotypes, gum bichromate. I love all that. I just recently had a photographer do a glass plate, uh, wet collodion portrait of my family. Like, I love that stuff. I'm all for all of that. And then there's also a lot of hybrid processes. For example, Kate Brakey, who we represent, she's making these modern day oratones now. So historically, the oratone was printed on glass in the dark room. She's working with a digital printer that's capable of printing the digital print onto glass, and then she hand gilds the back. I have never heard of this process. Say it again. So it's like the oratone. I don't know what that is. So the oratone, historically, you would coat glass, and you would print a photographic image on it. And then usually you would get some sort of gold dust and powder the back with that. And Part of what it achieves it is, is it achieves a lot more dimensionality to it. So you take a 1D image, and not to say it turns it into a hologram, but it definitely creates a little extra dimension to it. And so Kate, I would say a number of years ago, started revisiting this historic process, but bringing in some digital tools, being that she's printing the image onto the glass or she's having somebody print. It's a very special digital printer. She's not just running a sheet of glass through through her Epson. Oh, wouldn't that be amazing, though? 
oh, I mean, maybe in a few years, that'll be. <laughs> I want to run a sheet through my 9900s, you know, a big A4 or AO size print. Mm-hmm. Ooh, that'd be amazing. And then after that, she grabs her gold leaf and hand gilds the back of the piece. So she's really achieving the same effect as that historic process, just approaching it in a different way. Fascinating. Well, I will look it up and I will put a link to some examples of it, probably yeah. her work in the show notes. And and Edward Curtis, he was he didn't invent the oratone, but if you're looking at the more he's one of the more notable photographers that worked in oratones. Edward Curtis, the one that did the Great West and the Native Americans and all that. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, then and I know what you're talking about. And Kate was visiting it for really the same reason. They were both frustrated with the one dimensionality of the photographic print. And someday you'll have to come to Santa Fe and I'll show you one in the gallery because they are on our website, but seeing them in person is a whole different aspect to them. Oh yeah. Well, most all photography is. I'm sad to say that I have never made it to Santa Fe in my all my travels, but I, it is sort of on my bucket list of places to go. Well, I would also like to come visit Prague. So I'm here. We just moved into a new apartment. We have space. You're welcome to come. All right. Well, I'll, I'll bring one of the Kate Brakeys. <laughs> Fabulous. Yeah. There we go. Okay. Okay. You mentioned it a little bit before about like people questioning whether digital prints were, you know, like are digital prints like worth the money and all this kind of stuff. And, and of course, you know, going back to like my training and stuff, it, it, archival materials, are they still as important? Like, do, because like there's a sort of a trend, you know, like with like a lot of alternative artists out there using non-archival materials intentionally. Um, is that something people still inquire about and or is it important to the collectors they do ask about that and digital prints well when it comes to color work color digital prints are, are certainly more archival and more stable than your traditional c prints when it comes to black and white work of course you're well maybe not everybody knows this but your your platinum print is going to be the most stable of the types of prints that are out there. But overall, any any digital print is going to be stable and, and outlast most of us. Yeah. So yeah. It, it's still a consideration, but sometimes there's that that fun aspect of the work where maybe somebody's making cyanotypes and they're not fully fixing them so that they do change over time. And Going back to my love of unique prints, that's that's something I'm definitely into. But not not everybody's going to be comfortable purchasing something like that. All right, we sort of touched on this a little bit, but like technologies and how it's affected you. Like, so you all started before, but as far as I can tell, sort of like around the same time the internet was even existing, like the beginning. Um, so, like, how has the internet specifically, I guess I'm sort of asking about like social media mm -hmm. affected the, the market from your standpoint. Like, is it, is it better because of social media or is it becoming more difficult because of social media? 
Well, technology has always been kind of an important part of PhotoEye. We actually had a, a shopping cart on our website as early as 1996. So in, in terms of a lot of galleries these days kind of needing to speed up their digital presence, just because everything that's going on in the world, that, that's been helpful, that that's something we're already doing. And in terms of social media, I, I don't think it's affected us in any sort of negative way. It's just kind of an extra way to, to get the information out there, I believe. And I know you're not, you're not super into social media. I've watched some of the other shows and, and you've definitely, <laughs> I think you're wanting me to say. <laughs> no, I'm not wanting you to say anything. I'm just asking because like, it's, yeah, I'm just, not, I, it, I'll be, I think I'm like one generation too old to be able to understand how to use it effectively. And so like, I'm always sort of wondering like, how are people doing it? How are they using it well? Because God knows I cannot seem to use it well. And so I'm sort of looking for some advice. <laughs> like, what are you doing that works on social media? Because I can't make it work. I think it's a consistency thing, really. Yeah, I'm not consistent. Yeah, I think, yeah, consistency and, and engaging with the people that you're communicating with on there. Of course, if you're starting a brand new Instagram page or something like that, it just really takes a while to, to get it going. And of course, when you start it and you post something, maybe you're lucky if anybody likes it, but kind of once you get enough followers, the more followers you have, the more followers you build up. And I think if people can expect that you're going to post something at a certain time of day, that type of thing is is all very helpful. I'm so bad at that. It's a commitment. I mean, it's a whole other commitment. Like like the show you're making. If if you were not committed to scheduling the times to talk to people and when you were going to do that and when you're going to edit, if you weren't doing all of those things, you wouldn't be able to pull this off. So I think it's it's kind of the same thing. Yeah, but I don't do it with any amount of consistency. That's the thing, because like I, what the way I do these uh, these podcasts is I, because everybody's all around the world, I can't say like, oh, I'm recording from nine to twelve on Tuesdays. Are you available at that time? Because of course, sure. people are in different time zones, and then I often will do like a bunch of conversations, uh, like in a, in two weeks, and then I won't do any for two weeks. So like I sort of batch my recordings and then take some time off and then batch my recordings, and take some time off. Cause to a certain extent, it's really interesting because I find that taking a little bit of time off allows me to reflect on some of the things that people have said. Okay. Uh, because if, you know, if I'm, if I'm just going conversation to conversation, to conversation, I don't stop and like sort of say like, Oh, okay, wait, what they said, that was something I, I could do <laughs> in my own career. Mm -hmm. Um, and so like having that time to reflect, actually, I find to be very beneficial because it makes it so that next time I come to do some conversations that I, I have integrated that in the previous information better so that I can then say like, okay, I learned this thing. So now what, what can I learn on top of that thing? Absolutely. But in terms of, I can expect that next week there's going to be two episodes. Therefore, I'm going to look and, and see what those episodes are. 
And I think it's kind of the same thing with social media as well. Yeah, I know. I, I just got to step up. I mean, you don't, you don't have to. <laughs> I don't think it's going to kill you not to do it. And you've also kind of got to want to do it or have a good reason to feel like it's important. Yeah, it, it's really interesting because like, I find that, that there is zero correlation between my activity on social media and the amount of listeners I get in any given day. Mm-hmm. Like there are days where I will, I will post, you know, two stories and a thing on Instagram and a thing on Facebook, and I'll have no marketable difference in the amount of people listening. And then one day I will like, I and then I won't do anything on any social media for like three or four days, and suddenly there'll be thousands of listens, like for no reason. So you had Lou Mitchell on your show recently, mm-hmm. and. I follow him on social media, so I saw that he was on the show. Did you happen to follow any of his posts and see any correlations between views and his posts? I'm just wondering from the perspective of of having the guest. Yeah, I there. well, I yeah, I I do every now and then I'll be like, okay, you know what I need to do? I need to get somebody who has lots of followers on Instagram, and then I can like talk with them. And then when I post on Instagram, then they they'll repost it on theirs, so they'll put it in their stories or whatever, and that will then draw more. People. Nope, no marketable increase. Mm-hmm. No, no, it's really surprising. Like I just don't get it. I mean, I feel like I feel like like the early adopters the 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 system the algorithm the whatever was really clear and obvious sort of how you could connect with people and how could you could use hashtags and and how you can tag people and like and people really were sort of engaging in that way and i don't feel like it's as that maybe it's the algorithm that's changing the algorithm that's done it but they're not as sort of like hey i like blue mitchell and he's on this podcast, so I probably would like this podcast. And so then they listen. Like It, it just doesn't come out that way. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why. And it's it's kind of forever changing as, as well. I mean, you hear about on Facebook, maybe just for whatever algorithm reason, they stop showing me your posts or, or vice versa. So I'm, I'm not an expert on the subject, but... I was looking to you as an expert, you're, so you're not. Well, I'm going to say consistency and engagement is <laughs> is where I found the most success. Fair enough. All right. So to wrap this up, I have two questions. One's a new one. So if you've listened, you haven't heard this before. I would like to know three artists that you admire and or believe des- should should be getting more recognition and why. So the first artist I'm going to mention is Edward Bateman. And he's somebody we just started working with this year. And he's a professor in Salt Lake City, Utah. And he is just mind-blowingly creative. One example I will give is an exhibition that we featured as part of an online show this year. So basically, he had always wanted to go to Yosemite, and he had never been and couldn't go during the pandemic. So he went online and researched Yosemite. He has a 3D printer. So he 3D printed 
Yosemite and he's been photographing it from his kitchen table during the pandemic. And they are just amazing. At one point, he decided he wanted to make a solar eclipse. So he went out and got some LED bulbs and and he's just always up to something amazing. He's also done a lot of work where he's used old cabinet cards and, and found photography and incorporated robots. So he's he's really just a joy to work with, but everything he creates just kind of blows my mind, I have to say. So he's definitely the first person that comes to my mind. I totally understand why. And then Christopher Koval, I wouldn't say that he's he's pretty well known, but I feel like he could be even more well known. I don't know if you know his work, but a lot of his work is cameraless and he exposes silver gelatin paper with gunpowder. So more specifically, he lives in Arizona. He'll go out into the desert and he'll place the silver gelatin paper on the desert ground and the process of igniting it actually makes the exposures. So it's a combination of the way that the heat is interacting with the chemical. It's also exposing the paper as well. And they're they're just amazing. So talking about creating one-of-a-kind works, there's there's no way to really recreate those works either. Absolutely. I just noticed also, I was flicking through your website again, that you actually represent Linda Connor, my professor at San Francisco Art Institute. We do. Yes. Yeah. She yeah. didn't like me, but it's fine. Well, I bet she would now. <laughs> I should reach out to her actually, but yeah, she, she, Linda's she, great. I've spoken about her in the past. She, she, yeah, I've spoken about her in the past. <laughs> she doesn't like me. Well, I think it's tough to, as a young student in art school, you go in with specific, I don't know, a specific way of working. And then all of a sudden you're, the professors show up with all these rules. And, and I mean, I definitely had butted heads with some professors in, in art school who told me, oh, you can't do that. <laughs> Oh, but well, I mean, and I was such an arrogant little shit when I was a kid. And I, I, there's one that I've, I've talked about on the past, but Frank Taperna from the Corcoran, he, he constantly railed me. He's like, you shouldn't be using text with your images. It's a crutch. You should put more work into making the images more expressive instead of relying on the text. And I kept telling him, you know, fuck you. This is the way I want to do it. Blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And 10 years later, I was teaching somewhere and a student turned in some work with image and text. And I literally heard myself say, you shouldn't use image and text. It's a crutch. It's just like, literally, I was speaking Frank's words to my student. And so the next chance I had when I saw him, I, I apologized greatly to him for that because uh, he was right. Well, it's funny how all of that happens. And, and my specific memory from my freshman year of art school is I think I wanted to pursue a project that included both Van Dykes and cyanotypes. And this teacher told me I could not do that. I had to pick one or, or the other. And now I find myself later kind of explaining to photographers 
similar things or, or that, okay, you can do both of these things, but they're different bodies of work and you have to put them in, in, in different boxes, but. Well, you can put them on top of each other, you know, yes. Van Dyke Brown with a cyanotype, they can be printed together. Oh yes. Yes, definitely. Just not on separate pieces of paper. No. Yeah. A series of a, a single cohesive series is not cohesive. If you mix those two mediums. Yes. Yes. And, and I did not want to hear that. Yeah, <laughs> but that's all part of the part of the process. It's amazing. Sometimes it amazes me that my like I didn't get kicked out of some of these schools from the the, the shit that I pulled with them. But mm-hmm. anyways, all right. Uh, third person. I'm gonna go with Vanessa Marsh, who is a San Francisco based artist, and all of her techniques are just really unique. Most recently, she's been working with lumen prints. And and they're kind of photograms, but not exactly. So she had created these landscapes out of cut paper, and would make multiple exposures using the different pieces of cut landscape as kind of the photogram elements on silver gelatin paper and where the lumen printing comes in for those who aren't familiar is should be using gold toner as the fixer. So it's silver gelatin paper, but the end result in her case is actually a kind of a variety of pinks and oranges and and just this very different color palette than you're going to get typically with silver gelatin. Yeah, one of my previous guests, Amanda Marchand, is actually does lumen prints as well. And the other thing that's really interesting with those, I want to add, is is depending on where you're making them, you're going to get completely different results. We had one of our artists fly out from New York back when you could fly with gold toner in her suitcase. Somehow she made it because she just wanted to know what the lumen prints would look like in Santa Fe versus new york oh yeah it's very different i I ran into that because i learned how to do lumen prints in i think san francisco and then i was in ohio and i was trying to teach it to my students and like the results were completely different colors were different the ever even though it was the exact same process exact same materials the 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 quality of the light something about the difference like of the longitude or latitude, I'm always really bad. Which one's the higher towards the North Pole? <laughs> I think it's latitude. I don't know. Higher towards the North Pole. <laughs> like you, you get very different results because I also tried to again do it in the United Arab Emirates in you know near the equator, and colors were completely different uh, because of the intensity of the light and the, the UV. I don't even know why. It's all kinds of really crazy chemical processes. I love all those types of things. So going back to the the one-of-a-kind prints and all, that's definitely something I am into. Love it. All right. Last thing, um, advice. Any advice for the young artists out there that are desiring gallery representation, things they should do or things they should not do in trying to achieve gallery representation? In, in terms of subject matter, I have been asked by artists, is there something I should photograph or should not photograph because it will be more 
commercially successful and, and just that idea, that concept, you should just throw in the trash. You've, you've got to create what you're driven to create and, if, and, and doing it any other way, I just don't think you're going to be successful. And some of the best advice I've ever been given just in terms of creating art is, is just working harder than anybody else is, is going to take you a long way. You can't expect to just go out and make some pictures and, and make a career out of that. You got to keep, you got to keep doing it. And then in terms of approaching galleries, the simplest way I have come up with to explain it is because I think there's a lot of mystery to that and just how, how do you even do this? So people do crazy things. So I always advise of consider it like you're trying to get a job, right? So if you want to get a job at the bank, you don't just go storm the bank manager's office and demand an interview on the spot. And, and, and sometimes that does happen in the gallery because my office is in the middle of the gallery. So people sometimes would just show up when I'm eating lunch and start pulling out prints. So if you want to show your work to PhotoEye, for example, if you go hunt through the website a little bit, there's a little button and it says submissions. And if you click on that little button, it tells you everything you need to know. So that's where I kind of parallel it to getting a job. There's usually some sort of strategy. And, and some galleries' websites I found have said, you know, maybe they only look at work in March, sure. But most most have rules and, and most have some sort of information there. The first rule of getting a gallery is follow the rules. Well, you know, that sounds like really boring advice. But another thing to really consider is if, if I'm entering a relationship with an artist, it's a long-term relationship. It, it's not just a one-time thing. So I need to trust that if, and this all sounds so boring, but it's all part of it. If, if I've asked you to FedEx me some prints on Wednesday, and I don't trust you're going to do that, that's, that's going to be a problem. Or I've heard of artists who have entered juried shows and maybe there's some specific rule like you have to hang the frame on a wire at so-and-so height and they don't do it. And guess what? They don't hang their work on the wall. So you don't want to get thrown out of the show. You know, you, you've done the work, you've made the work, you've got accepted, you printed, framed, shipped the work, all that's a lot of work. So to get thrown out for something like that, that's terrible. And I've really never been one to color in the lines or draw straight lines when they told me to in art school, but a lot of the gallery interactions, it's, it's business. It is a business. So it's important. Wait, one last thing. Actually, I have a question. Okay. So let's say, let's say like the unique print thing. Uh, these days I'm making sort of like unique artworks. I don't even know how to explain what I do. But anyways, I find that it's very difficult to submit f f with unique artworks because oftentimes there's texture or depth or things that like sort of it doesn't represent well in a single image of a thing. So like when you're receiving works, 
do you I, I didn't look at your submission thing so like do you say like 10 you know like no more than 10 or like what's your criteria you can submit as many images as you'd like to but usually there's i think 25 per submission and right. usually okay. it would be different images well, the question is, is though, like, is it legitimate these days to like submit like uh, a you know a shot of the entire image and then like some details to show some of these sort of unique qualities about the thing? I wouldn't say it's necessarily common and that everybody does that, but if, for example, someone did that and they had a reason such as that to be doing that, I would be, I would be open to that. I think it. It makes sense. Kind of like I was talking about Kate's oratones. If you just look at the JPEGs online, you you don't fully get it. To a certain extent, I really wish like submission people would like allow for like short videos so that like even just like so that I could just turn the print so that like you could just see how it looks when it's sort of seen it from different lights or different angles. I, I, I look forward to that being included in submission opportunities. <laughs> Right. And I I can't speak for any, everybody, but if if someone had a reason like that, that it was not just a straight digital print and it required extra images to get the idea, I would be I would be receptive to that. Okay, good. I feel better because I've always been scared about submitting my newest works. I'm like, fuck, I don't know what I can how I can do this because a single image doesn't express it. That can definitely be tricky. And that can also be tricky too if you're, for example, showing in multiple galleries and there's only one just in terms of, you know, if I have a, a piece that's on our website and maybe some of the other websites we sell on, I need to be sure that that it's available, <laughs> you know, that the other gallery didn't sell it or something like that. So again, boring, boring advice, but... It's not boring, but important <laughs> advice. It's important, but it, it doesn't sound very exciting. So, okay. Any last topics that we didn't touch that you want to talk about, or things that you want to flesh out that I that didn't give you a chance to expand on? Well, I would like to to mention that PhotoEye has been doing some pretty amazing online exhibitions. In this past year, we really haven't been doing physical exhibitions. It doesn't make sense. And, and a lot of people have been doing that, but what does that even mean, online exhibition? So what we've been doing is one of the other arms of PhotoEye is this website creation tool called Visual Server, which Rickson also invented. And there's a new version of Visual Server that's currently in beta, it's Visual Server X. So we're using one of the templates from Visual Server X for these online exhibitions. And all of the images can be seen in 3K and you can actually zoom into the images to see little details a little better. So particularly since everybody's all over the world, these exhibitions are definitely worth looking at. We did one earlier this year with Mark Klett, which was in honor of his retrospective book. There's about 100 images in that particular exhibition. That exceeds an exhibition that we could have actually installed in the space. There's an Edward Bateman exhibition. And by the time this airs, there'll be a new one with Richard Tushman up. So in terms of 
you were asking about just kind of digital format and getting the work out there that that has been our strategy this year and has it worked um i mean obviously it's not going to like literally replace the the physical exhibitions but like has it done a decent job for you all it has it definitely has and then we've also paired that with our photo eye conversations series so if you Go to the photo eye blog and type in photo eye conversations. You can find a number of those. Both the Mark Clutt exhibition and the Edward Bateman exhibition, we actually, or the artist and I collaborated on virtual walkthroughs of online exhibitions. So this is not something you would have seen in, in past years, but I think Mark and I spent a good hour and a half walking through his entire online exhibition virtually. And as the gallery director, did you find it to be sort of like utilizing these new technologies, even though they're technologies your company created, but like utilizing these new technologies, was it, did it save you all time? Like, so like in the long run, like, did you spend less time than you would physically installing or, and or money even for that matter than doing a physical uh, exhibition? You can definitely put together an online exhibition a little bit faster and that there's no you don't have to worry about shipping and framing or or how, you know, maybe we wouldn't have been able to show a 70 by 80 piece because we didn't have the space for it. When you're looking at online, it really doesn't matter. You don't have to worry about those details. In terms of the programming, Rickson actually designed a whole new template specifically for the online exhibition. So there there was a lot of work that went into that. We still have plenty of things to do. It's just a different way of going about it. Okay, last little bit. I swear, I keep saying last question. Last, because <laughs> you brought up this new technology kind of stuff. In your, I'm not really asking you to prognosticate the future, but like as your experiences of doing both like brick and mortar exhibitions will probably continue once everything is opened up again. Mm -hmm. Do you foresee still continuing to do these virtual exhibitions also, or are they, are you going to stop, plan to stop doing those once you have brick and mortar ability? Hard to say, but, but I, as of today, I, I believe we'll probably continue to do both on a certain level, the technology and the website's always been a big part of what we do to begin with. So I think just this strange year we've all had is have just kind of pushed us to be a little, yeah, however long it's been going on, <laughs> has pushed us to be a little more creative and just think of different ways that, that we can reach our audience. And a lot of our audience is actually outside of Santa Fe. So having the online exhibitions and the talks on Zoom will be helpful, I think, moving forward, even when we can resume business as usual or whatever that's going to be anymore. True. So. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your time. Oh, you're welcome. Nice to meet you. You too. Hopefully you'll come to Prague and you'll bring that print with you so I can see what this oratone process truly looks like in reality. I've got to add, just because 
I love them. They they look different in different light sources. Ooh, so you can, you can, exciting. You can lower the lights and the, any ambient light in the room will just bounce off that gold. So that's one thing that is missing in the online exhibitions. Again, video submissions. This is what I'm talking about. Got to be able to, you know, do these kinds of things to show people how things can look different in different situations. I think it's important. In the future. Yes, in the future. I enjoy making these podcasts and having all these great conversations. I hope you're enjoying them as much as I do. If you enjoy and appreciate the podcast, please give us a five-star rating and a nice comment would also be greatly appreciated. Please tell your friends to listen and subscribe. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if there's a professional person in the arts industry, any level of the arts industry, I don't care if they're institutional museum curators or if they're your local gallerist, or artist. If you would like me to have a conversation with them, please send me a message through Instagram and I'll do my best to get them as a guest on the podcast. Additionally, if you have any questions, but specific questions, not vague, open-ended, interpretive questions for future guests, send them to me and I will be happy to ask them on your behalf. Please be sure to follow us on Instagram and tell your friends about us as well. We will be starting a newsletter in the near future, which will keep you updated with our future plans, our future guests, and everything else that we're going to be doing associated with the podcast. Please sign up at our website, wisefoolpod.com. And whatever you're doing right now, be sure to have fun.